Welcome to On the Mathematica Frontline, a special series of the PLUS podcast. My name is Marianne Freiberger. Over the last year, we've done a lot of reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. We've looked at the now famous R number, at growth rates, and we've explored the mathematical models that have, and sometimes have not, informed policy decisions about lockdowns, school closures, social distancing, and all the other measures we've had to live with. Behind those mathematical models, there are, of course, people. Those mathematicians who make the models and who are grappling with the unprecedented challenge of coming to grips with the live pandemic unfolding in front of our eyes. The Mathematical Frontline podcast is about those people, the maths they do, how they go about it, and the impact it has on their personal lives, as well as the lives of everybody else living through the pandemic. This podcast series is part of our exciting collaboration with Juniper, the consortium of modeling groups from across the UK, whose research and insight feeds into the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Modeling Group, otherwise known as SPIM, and the now familiar SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, both of whom advise the UK government on the scientific aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. In this podcast, we speak to Mike Tildesley, Associate Professor in the Zeeman Institute for Systems Biology and Infectious Disease Epidemiology Research at the University of Warwick, and also a member of SPIM. Mike and a number of researchers from Warwick are members of Juniper. During the podcast, you might also hear him mention his colleagues, Louise Dyson and Ed Hill. You'll also hear him mention Matt Keeling, one of the founders of Juniper, who is responsible for Mike's unusual route into epidemiology. Mike started out doing a PhD in astrophysics, which seems very far, literally and mathematically, from modeling the spread of diseases. My colleague Rachel Thomas spoke to Mike, and she began their interview by asking him what prompted this change of direction. When I was in the first year of my PhD, we were very much kind of encouraged to um, um, go and kind of attend um, fourth year lectures on just to really kind of build up our overall knowledge of, of applied maths. Um, and one of the lectures I attended, one of the lecture courses I attended was population dynamics that was given by Matt Keeling. Um, and um, I was quite engaged in it and suddenly realized that actually a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the kind of the, the skills I was learning as an astrophysicist, a lot of the kind of the models that I was developing were actually quite similar in kind of structure to kind of these population dynamics models. Um, I think the difficulty as an astrophysicist was, um, I, I personally found it quite hard to, um, to really see the short-term impact of what I was doing. Um, and this is the thing, I mean, I think, um, and, you know, it's completely personal choice on this one, but um, I found it really hard because I suppose it's such a well-developed field. Um, and what I was doing really in my PhD was maybe a tiny building block on, you know, centuries of research. And I found it really hard to actually kind of work out, well, actually within my lifetime, what impact my work would have. Um, and um, that kind of made it difficult for me to really envisage a future career in that particular field. But when I started to sort of get, um, sort of learn more about the kinds of work that Matt and colleagues were doing, I suddenly realized, well, actually, you know, I've got the skills to move into this field, but also I can also see kind of more immediate 
impact, as it were. You know, actually, the work that we do could um, have impact in the short term. I mean, of course, at the time, I don't think I would have realised that maybe 20 years later, we'd really be seeing the Im really immediate impact of that. But certainly that was what motivated me in the short term. And So I spent a long time really as a postdoc in those early years, really working on livestock disease. Um, and um, I suppose over the years, as often we do, you know, you diversify a little bit. So I started to do more work on zoonotic infections. Um, I've had active projects on avian influenza, um, you know, which ironically before the COVID, you know, a lot of us were thinking, well, this was going to be the next big pandemic of something that was influenza like. Um, and then kind of more recently, when I started sort of in my current position, obviously you end up kind of supervising a lot more students and working with a lot more postdocs. And I've moved much more into, well, a whole range of different systems. So not just livestock. The livestock work is still continuing quite actively, but we've also got a lot more projects um, on both animal and human diseases. Um, I have also recently, um, last few years, started to be a little bit more involved in setting up field studies. So I've got an active field study at the moment in the Philippines on rabies, which is operating in um, animal um, bite centers in the Philippines and kind of monitoring people coming in with bites from dogs and actually trying to identify risk. So it's uh, very much on sort of a heart of it. I started out as quite a theoretical um, sort of epidemiologist, but have come quite more, a lot more applied, I think, as the years have gone on. How did you then get involved in the modelling work on this particular pandemic? How did that happen? So, you know, back in kind of March pre-lockdown, um, I wasn't actively involved, but there was a small group of us at Warwick that um, got together. And of course, at this stage, Matt Keeling was, all, was already very heavily involved um, in that work. Uh, there was a small group of us that got together and sort of had a discussion and actually thought, you know, we given what we do we should really try to provide support so we started kind of developing our own um collaboration and trying to build up some kind of model that we could use ultimately to inform um, to inform policy um and then i think as we got sort of towards the middle of march matt was really very much a lone wolf in warwick i think he was doing an awful lot of work and of course he still is um doing an awful lot of work um but didn't really have um kind of support from others within warwick below him it sort of um in, in SPY-M. And I think um, he then suggested that myself and Louise Dyson and Ed Hill, who were all working on this kind of sub project within Warwick, get more um, involved in SPY-M and sort of support him in some of his modelling work. So we probably started to get involved round about the time of the first lockdown. Um, so um, late March 2020, 2020. Um, we got involved. And then, of course, it very quickly grew from there. I think this is the thing. Once you sort of start to get involved, all of a sudden you get kind of uh, dragged in very quickly. And all of a sudden you're involved in a lot of different projects that are going on. Could you give us um, a little bit of a taste of the kind of work you, you've been doing then on the pandemic? OK, so there have been kind of a number of things that I'm, I've been working on in the last 12 months. Um, Matt really has been taking the main lead in running our kind of main Warwick model um, with, and there's been a lot of support from Louise and Ed in that as well. Um, but I've probably been sort of more 
front and center working on education. So I've been doing a lot of work on, uh, so I, um, I chair a group that looks at transmission of COVID in higher education settings that's uh, run through the Isaac Newton Institute. Um, I've also been doing quite a lot of work on schools. Um, so we've, um, we have a couple of PhD students at Warwick who've been doing some fantastic analysis of school absences and um, how that's changed sort of on a regional basis and also in response to control measures. So we've been quite involved in that. And I think there's been another of, um, sort of a number of other things that have come up um, really um, at various points over the last 12 months. So um, we developed a model last summer um, to look at workers returning to the workplaces. So we developed a network model that was trying to look at what would be kind of safe strategies for workers to return, i.e. what would be the impact of, say, workers returning for two days a week compared with full time and whether you would stagger those days or send everyone back kind of in sync. So we developed a model to look at that. Um, I did a little bit of work later looking at potential impact of, say, local lockdown strategies, um, which kind of was a precursor to the tier system coming in. So that work was done over the summer. Um, and then obviously, I mean, a lot of work that Warwick have been doing really in the last few months um, has been focused on vaccination, you know, targeting vaccination strategies and also the roadmap. Probably more recently and probably the thing that I've been most interested in in the last few months was really um, looking at taking more of an epidemiological economic perspective to control. So um, I've been um, leading a bit of work really looking at, well, you know, going back and analysing our models and say, well, actually, you know, a lot of the modelling work that we have done historically, not just for COVID, but also prior to COVID, is really focused on, you know, we might try and look at the effect of a control policy, but we look at it purely based on the sort of direct impact of the disease, you know, how many people might be infected, how many people might go to hospital, how many people might sadly die from the disease. Um, and, um, now, of course, in reality, you know, we know that there are other harms. So we know that, like, if we look at the situation with COVID, if you have a very severe lockdown, um, then, of course, that's you know, that's great for COVID. Right. You know, that forces the cases to go down dramatically. But, you know, from as a, from a country perspective, we can't stay in lockdown for 12 months because that has so many other harms and not just economically. You know, that's very harm. You know, that has harm for, say, maybe non-COVID health, harm for mental health and well-being and so forth. Um, and um, so what we've been trying to do is really say, well, OK, what if we sort of challenge our models and say, rather than just trying to determine the optimal policy where you minimise direct impact of COVID, look at, say, well, what if we're trying to, and this sounds awful to think about this, but you know, so we're saying if we're trying to trade off health against economic loss, for example, um, and um, determining what the optimal policy would be, given our kind of willingness to pay, as it were. So, you know, if you care more, you know, if you care much more about COVID health and you don't care about your economic loss, then, of course, you're going to recommend a very stringent control policy because that saves a lot more lives. Um, but, of course, the cost is much higher. Um, if you are sort of trying to consider maybe, you know, some, some impact on the economy, impact on businesses and so forth, you might suggest a slightly more moderate policy, but of course that's going to lead to more, you know, to a higher health impact. 
Um, now, of course, there is no right or wrong answer to this from an epidemiologist's perspective, but I think it's important that we have this discussion that there are other harms. And of course, in the last 12 months, we've been totally focusing on you know, reporting cases every day, reporting people being admitted to hospital every day and reporting deaths every day. And of course, it's important that we consider these, but we don't focus quite so much, I think, on all the other impacts, all the other harms of control. And I think that's what we've been trying to tease out with this bit of work. It's fairly preliminary at the moment, uh, and I think needs a lot more um, work on it, but I think it is potentially, hopefully quite impactful over the months to come. What we're not seeking to do with this work is advise an optimal policy. Um, but what we are seeking to do is really actually get the message across that there are other harms and dependent upon how you quantify all of these harms and trade them off against one another, that will have a big influence on what your optimal policy should be. It's interesting that you said, you know, you're not trying to tell people what the opt optimal policy is. Could you maybe explain that? aspect of your role in the role of providing this scientific advice that feeds into government policy decisions that it's come across from the discussions you've had and others have had it's not about saying this is the right thing to do it's about providing information oh i think that's absolutely right and i yeah i'm this is really what we've tried to do throughout the last well nearly 18 months now is um make it very clear that really the role of the role of the epidemiologist is to look at different scenarios and actually say, if you do this, this is what the model tells you will happen. Um, now, you know, we are not in a position, very fortunately, actually, we are not in a position to look at all these data and say, right, this is the one that we should do. That's not our role at all. But we can look, for instance, what would be the impact of, you know, vaccinating 2 million people a week compared with 3 million people a week? Um, what would be the impact of targeting it in a different way from kind of the roughly the age ordering that we're doing it at the moment? Um, what would be the impact of doing a lockdown now as opposed to in two weeks time? Um, and all we're really doing is providing evidence. So, you know, you'll probably see these really long documents that are put together by, you know, Warwick and all these and the other sort of universities involved with SPY-M, which really have a whole bunch of different scenarios whole bunch of graphs with sensitivity analyses all across the board showing the impact of different vaccine assumptions, different transmission assumptions, all of these different things, so that we can actually provide as much evidence as possible as to what we might expect based on a given scenario. But it's absolutely not our role. And we have to be very, very careful when we write these documents, make it really clear, we're not telling you the best thing to do. All we're doing is providing the evidence so that you can make the decision, you know, so that the government can make a decision based upon the best evidence possible. This has been quite an unusual time in everyone's lives. What's been the most striking experience you've had over the last year and a bit? either mathematical or otherwise of the process of working during this time so i mean i think this so there's a number of things and i think i'll you know i'll do my best to try and pick out a, a positive and a negative um and um you know i i think the biggest positive for me actually if we look back at it is really how you know all of these academics have come together and worked together collaboratively and i think it's been a real um 
you know, I, I've really appreciated that aspect of it that we have, you know, I'm really, really fortunate to collaborate with, you know, experts in infectious diseases and behavioral science and all these other disciplines on, um, in universities throughout the UK. Um, and it's been very much a sense of we're working together for the collective good. You know, I see this with, with SPIEM and with the Juniper Consortium, that, you know, if something comes through, if a commission comes through, you know, you always have a pretty good idea who's probably the best person within Juniper, maybe to address this issue or the best group of people to do it. Um, but people are so ready to kind of uh, muck in, as it were, uh, and say, well, actually, you know, I could do this. So, you know, we need a literature search to do. I'll go and do that. And I think it's been um, that has been sort of unprecedented, certainly in my research career, that, you know, I'm working with a whole bunch of academics, both, you know, both fairly senior academics and academics that are fairly, you know, fairly sort of early stage of their career. And all coming together, there's no hierarchy. You know, I think it's just been, you know, we recognize the the expertise and, you know, the, how fortunate we are to work with academics with such great expertise. And we're all kind of, you know, it sounds totally idealistic, but, you know, we're all working together for the common good, as it were. So that's kind of the big positive for me that I've experienced in the last 12 months. On the flip side, um, I think it's, you know, it's really daunting. And I've, you know, I, I've experienced this a few times that um, this is really the, you know, prior to the pandemic, you know, we've had a couple of pieces of work that have maybe had media coverage, you know, over the past kind of 20 years, but it's not been, you know, it's maybe made a wave for a day and that's been it. Um, I think it's really daunting at the moment. And we, it means that we have a real sense of responsibility that, you know, a paper that you push out now could be headline news tomorrow. Um, and that's something I find, I still find really scary. Um, you know, the, the brushes with the media that we do when all of a sudden you realise you're, um, you know, you're the lead story on a BBC website saying government advisor says this. Um, and then you have that sinking feeling of, oh, you know, I've someone's cherry picked something from an interview I've given. And, you know, that's really difficult. And I think it, it makes you really, really aware. And I've done quite a lot of media in the last 12 months and it makes you really aware that you have to be so careful about what you say, um, that even if you're saying something that, you know, you believe is the right thing to say, sometimes you've just got to be really, really measured about it because something you say, as I said, could end up being a lead story somewhere else and could have huge impact on people's lives. And I think that's that's really hard. I think doing, doing the media is important because I think it's important that we try to do our best to sort of, um, you know, educate the public as it were regarding the regarding the pandemic and get as much information out as we can but also i think it comes with a level of responsibility and a level of danger as it were that if you're not careful you will get misquoted because certain aspects of the media are really just gunning for a headline and so i think that's been quite difficult um over the last 12 months to try and navigate that i mean that sounds incredibly challenging and also incredibly different from the way you lived and worked before um, before the COVID pandemic. I mean, how has working as a mathematician on the pandemic sort of impacted your life? You know, how do you, is, is your day different than it was 18 months ago? Well, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, it's not meant to be flippant at all, but of course, I mean, you know, for all of us, our day is different because, you know, I spend my life on Zoom um, and, um, you know, it's been like that, you know, I, I think I've been, I've probably spent probably the 
cumulative total of about one day's worth of time in the office in the last, you know, 18, well, since March last year. Um, so that in itself is different. Obviously, we have a series of meetings that we go in and obviously the COVID is dominating my research um, in a way that no other field, even, even foot and mouth disease that was working on a lot before, was not dominating in the past. Um, and I think the difficulty, of course, is that, you know, to, to be fair, I think Warwick actually have been extremely supportive to us in terms of sort of protecting us from a lot of commitments to allow us to do the COVID work. But of course, there are some things you still have to do. So we're having to, you know, keep obviously doing our lectures, keep doing our administrative roles in the university. And, and of course, we supervise postdocs and PhD students and we need to make sure that we give them the time. That's really, really important. And so obviously the COVID work goes on top of that. Um, I think from a personal perspective, I think it's been challenging. Um, and I think it's probably been particularly challenging for my children, I guess, that, um, you know, they are, I mean, it's really odd. I think they're almost used to the idea now of, oh, yeah, well, you know, dad's on a Zoom call, dad's got an interview to do. Um, and they've adjusted to it. But I think it's very strange to them, I think, this idea that, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and and I'm one of the scientists working on it. And, um, yeah. My rather bizarrely, my son's friends think I'm some kind of celebrity because my name's in the paper every so often. Um, I try to explain to them that in, you know, in another 12 months time, no one will know who I am. Well, at least I hope so, because that will mean the pandemic is over. Um, so I think that's been a strange impact of it in terms of it's not just how it affects me, but it's how it affects family life. Um, and I think you have to work really hard to make sure that, you know, you, you keep that work-life balance. You know, when it comes to the weekends, if we have a commission that comes in on, on a Friday that needs returning on the Monday, well, you know, I've got to make sure I give my children time. So that's when it becomes hard because you want to make sure you give your children time during the day, but then of course you still got to do the work. So typically what you're doing is, you know, doing all that work late at night, maybe, you know, having Saturday nights where you're working till two in the morning because you've got something due on the Monday. So that's something that I'll be really glad when we don't have to do anymore, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, there's sort of deadlines. There's deadlines in the past, but the deadlines that you and the other Juniper researchers are working to in the pandemic are quite a different type of deadline, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's um, certainly, it's, it's probably a little bit easier now, or at least it was prior to the emergence of the India 2 variant. But I think 12 months ago, and certainly over the over the early summer last year, it was really intense. And I think there were these weekends that it seemed almost like weekend after weekend after weekend, there was things to do. And you know, during the week, I remember I was, um, so our um, Ed Hill, who's one of our postdocs, who's um, also on SPY-M, um, he and I tend to be the, the night owls of Warwick in terms of working. And I remember there was a number of conversations we would have on teams at about one in the morning where we're trying to do a bit of work. And that seemed to be day after day in like May, June last year. So it's um, and, you know, we are, I'm sure, by no means alone in this. You know, there are a number of other academics who have been working late into the night to get pieces of work turned around um, as quickly as possible. Well, I hope that you're not a celebrity in 12 months' time for all of those reasons. I absolutely hope so too. That's it for this episode of On the Mathematical Frontline from the PLUS podcast. 
Thanks very much to Mike Tildesley for his time in recording this podcast. You can find out more about his work and about the work of other Juniper members at plus.maths.org. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.